like Hitler, recognizes right? You have to assassinate him to control. stop him. There is no, no stopping Rudy with Giuliani. They're at the real. Not Mitch McConnell. <laughs> not Lindsey Graham. He's telling you right now. It's Sidney Powell. Mark Stiles is telling you how it is. And an effort that Republicans in Congress thought yeah. would maybe last a few what, days, at most a couple exactly weeks, suddenly Donald becomes said. something that maybe what? will stretch into early 2021. Right there's an exasperation yeah, that, with uh, Lindsey Graham, with others close to Trump, million. that they're losing yep. control of the president, they're losing control of yeah. the presidency. Graham believes he can make a few phone calls, figure out if there's the voter fraud, the and then tell Trump, hey, it's time to close this. But then Trump decides he's just going to, to keep digging in. And Trump starts to listen less to no, Lindsey Graham, exactly. starts to listen less to those around him who are saying, hey, there's not a there there. Where's the evidence, Mr. President? Hello. But he keeps hearing from people on the far yeah, right yeah, yeah. and inside his yeah. new legal team that so there is something there. There is a stolen election that only needs to be further discovered. Off. Trump yeah. begins to believe it in an innate way, even Hello. though evidence Hello. doesn't back it up. Hello. And when people like Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani come into his orbit and start yeah, telling him yeah, that there are yeah. affidavits saying that there's voter fraud in 10 states or that the election machines are somehow rigged, Trump welcomes those ideas, even if they're not based in fact. Graham, his phone calls with Trump, they start to be shorter. His conversation's more clipped. Because if you're not in with Trump's effort in mid and late November 2020, you're not in with Trump at all. He wants yes people around him. That's why it's Sidney Powell who starts in late November and early December to Everybody go up to learn a new word. It's sick meetings, That yellow room up near the Basically residence in the second floor of the White House. That's Surround where Trump's huddling with, with Sidney Powell. Huddling with Rudy Giuliani. And, and if you're not yes. mapping out a way for him to stay in power, he doesn't want to hear from you. As he goes into that period, as the president is starting to push this, who is Bill Barr? And what is his relationship with Trump? And, you know, is he a deep state operative as, as he gets accused of later? Who is Bill Barr at that moment? Bill Barr had been attorney general for George H.W. Bush, then went into the private sector, into the private practice of law. But he wanted back in. Barr wanted back into Washington, back to be close to the flame of power. And he got that chance with President Trump. He ingratiates himself with Trump with a letter that outlines Barr's position on the Mueller investigation, expressing skepticism about the way the Mueller investigation is moving forward. Trump loves it. He brings Barr in, makes him attorney general. From day one, Barr builds a bond with Trump. Barr is a loyalist to Trump. And if that's what Trump wanted at this point in the presidency, someone who was going to do what he wanted at DOJ, who was going to be a tough presence, someone he could count on, not necessarily as a political soldier, uh, but as someone who wouldn't be a problem. Jeff Sessions, the previous AG, had been a real problem in Trump's view, and he wanted someone he could count on, a seasoned pair of hands at the Department of Justice. After the election, Barr is still a loyal figure close to Trump. Barr remains close to Trump in the days after the election, but he grows weary by the day with Trump's continued complaints about the election and allegations of fraud, allegations Barr knows are not based in fact. Because Barr has a team that's spread out around the country keeping track of the election and its integrity. Barr 
went a little bit too far in the eyes of many Democrats and some Republicans in having the DOJ pay so close attention to possible election fraud. Barr is already doing what Trump wants when it comes to the election. He has a whole team that has a close eye on what's happening in a state after state. But when Trump keeps barreling forward, Barr pulls him aside and says, Mr. President, enough. The evidence isn't there. And when Trump goes on and on about voter fraud in Michigan and voter fraud in Pennsylvania, Barr comes at Trump with the data, but Trump doesn't want to hear it. Trump screams at Barr and says, I don't want to hear what you have to say. You're wrong. This election was stolen. Barr says, sir, the election wasn't stolen. It was a breaking point. When Barr wouldn't echo Trump's claims, Barr knew it was over. It was time to leave. The only question was when. How important was Barr as a check? At that moment in our constitutional government and everything that was playing out, what could, you know, if the attorney general had decided to go along with the efforts of the White House, what role did he play? Barr was a check. He kept the president from making wild claims of voter fraud and using the DOJ as a weapon to fight his political opponents and make claims of fraud. But Barr was a check only so far. Uh, Barr doesn't stop Trump from continuing to move down the path of claiming the election was stolen, of moving toward January 6th with the intention of blocking Biden and the certification of the election. Barr is a roadblock to Trump, but he's not someone that ultimately has a lot of influence. He leaves the White House, Trump doesn't seem to care, and he just keeps going. Our system was built to have the Attorney General be an independent officer within the cabinet, the chief law enforcement officer. And this time, that chief law enforcement officer offered facts to the president. But if the president doesn't accept the facts from the chief law enforcement officer, does the system actually work? Because the president ignored his own attorney general, dismissed him, yelled at him, and the attorney general ultimately resigned. Barr had power, but he only had power to a point. If the president doesn't listen, are you really powerful? I mean, it's true. And at one point, Barr even goes public when he talks to the Associated Press. You know, how unprecedented move was that? How did Trump respond to that? Instead of seeing his own attorney general as the chief law enforcement officer who offers an opinion based in evidence, in fact, in investigation, Trump began to see Barr as a pundit, someone who he disagreed with about the election and could just be shrugged off, not taken seriously. And ultimately, they stop talking. Trump stops taking Barr's calls and stops calling Barr. Trump stops calling Barr. And he says to Barr at one point, Bill, do you notice I'm not calling you anymore? And Barr later told others, I thought that was good. I didn't want to be talking to Trump at that point. The president reaches out to Ted Cruz and asks him to get involved. Who is Ted Cruz and why was he important to Trump in this period? Oh, great question. Ted Cruz was supposed to be the next star of the Republican Party, maybe even the next Republican president. He wins the Iowa caucuses in 2016, the favorite of conservative evangelicals. The White House seems within reach, but Trump ruined Ted Cruz's ambitions. Trump put Cruz's entire career on the shelf, at least for four years, when he beat Cruz for the nomination. Cruz had a moment in 2016. Uh, Cruz was up on the stage at the Republican National Conventions and he told the crowd, vote your conscience. It was an opportunity for Cruz 
to maybe set himself up as not necessarily the anti-Trump, but the conservative standard bearer in the Trump era, to be someone separate from Trump, a conservative voice in a populist time. But ultimately, Cruz doesn't become the conservative alternative to Trump. He becomes an enabler of Trump politically, an ally of President Trump. Throughout the Trump presidency, instead of setting himself up as a foil, he sets himself up as an ally of Trump. By the end of the Trump presidency, Cruz is looking to help. He's a constitutional scholar and acclaimed lawyer. He knows Trump can only go so far. And when Trump asks him again and again in the post-election period, can you help me go to the Supreme Court, he often has to privately throw a bucket of cold water on Trump's legal dreams. He says, Mr. President, you have to do X, Y, and Z before you get to the Supreme Court. I'm happy to help in any way I can, but you have to lower your expectations. Cruz was an, essentially an outside legal advisor to Trump, offering perspective, not necessarily counsel. On December 30th, 2020, Senator Josh Hawley decides he is going to object. It's a monumental moment for the Republican Party. Mitch McConnell had hoped to keep every Republican senator away from objecting to get this election through January 6th to enable Biden to become the next president. Hawley throttles everybody's plans. Hawley also creates a vexing moment for Ted Cruz. If Hawley is going to object, what is Ted Cruz going to do? Cruz had a decision to make. What would he do? Object as well? Cruz pulls together his staff, has a conference call after Hawley makes his announcement. Cruz says, what are our options? They talk through different steps they could take to help Trump object to the count. Cruz decides to come up with a commission idea, a collective presentation of Republican senators who would say we need to now study the election, study election fraud through a commission. And this becomes the Cruz project, something that gives him a little separation from Hawley's pure objection. And it's an idea that shows Trump that Cruz is doing something, anything to help Trump stay in power. For Cruz, the commission idea was a way to show Trump he was in the trenches with the president. Cruz begins to make phone calls on his way back to Washington to other Republican senators. Join me on this commission. Let's object. But the cover for our objection will be that we're pushing a commission to study this election. It was a way to excuse objecting. It was a way to frame their decision to object to the Biden certification, to say to their own voters and their supporters, we're doing something. We're going to try to form a commission. McConnell hates the idea. He wants this to move on. He wants the election, the country to move forward. But Cruz and Hawley and others start to buy into the idea that maybe January 6th should be a reckoning. It should be a moment for the election to be studied further uh, by a commission, objections should take place. How important was Cruz when Polly goes out and he says he's going to do it? How important was the fact that Cruz signed on to this? Cruz is a vital figure because the Texas senator added his voice to Hawley's. He made it not just about Josh Hawley being out on a limb, uh, unlike everybody else in the Senate Republican Conference. Cruz gave credence to the effort to object, and he gave an opening for other Republican senators to sign on. Other Republican senators didn't want to just be seen as objecting for the sake of objecting. Cruz and his commission idea gave them an opportunity to say, 
well, this is why we're objecting. We want a commission to study the election. Cruz gives political and legislative cover to Republican senators who were on the fence, not sure if they were going to object, but looking for an opportunity to object and show the president they were fully with him. One of the things that's so interesting about Ted Cruz is, you know, Harvard Law School Solicitor General runs as a constitutional conservative. Um, it's a large part of his identity that he presents to voters. And in the book, there's a moment where he and Mike Lee are discussing, you know, whether any of this is constitutional. Can you tell us about that discussion and what it reveals? After the election, Senator Lee was exploring ideas uh, about how to help Trump uh, look for examples of fraud to contest the election. Lee was texting with Mark Meadows and saying, hey, I'm here to help you think through this. There's a possibility here that this election maybe was stolen or there was fraud in certain states. But eventually, Senator Lee comes to the conclusion that the evidence just isn't there. And he decides as much as he wanted to help his political ally Trump, he's not going to object. Cruz, because of his decision on a, a commission to study voter fraud, believes he has a pathway as a lawyer to make an objection and have an explanation for why he's doing so. It's a crossroads for Lee and Cruz, two best friends. What are they going to do? The two sharpest legal conservative minds in the U.S. Senate. They both know that the evidence of fraud isn't there. And Mike Lee says to Cruz, I'm just not going to object. I don't see where this evidence is. People keep talking about evidence, but I don't see it. Cruz, his closest friend, says, I get your position. I understand it. But a lot of people out there are saying there is fraud. So I want to have this commission, this, this, this entity to study the election. And that's my path forward. These two best friends agree to disagree. Lee doesn't object. Cruz objects. Trump's entire effort led to upheaval in the Senate Republican conference. Even the two guys who were always together, Lee and Cruz, couldn't agree on whether an objection made sense. They both knew that they didn't have meat on the bones here, but Cruz wanted to look for it. Lee was ready to say, let's move on. One of the other figures that's crucial in this period is Mitch McConnell who remains silent for a long period of time and eventually goes in and congratulates Joe Biden. Can you describe McConnell's calculation in that, in remaining silent through that period and where his relationship with Trump ended up at the end? McConnell privately loathes Donald Trump. He can't stand him. He knows on a political level, on a transactional level, they've been able to do a lot together. McConnell prides himself, sees his legacy as someone who has changed the judiciary in the United States. McConnell knows he is someone who has nominated countless judges to federal posts, put people on the Supreme Court, working with President Trump. But beyond their work together on tax cuts in the court, on a personal level, there's no love there. There's not even like. They despise each other. McConnell is seen by Trump as the ultimate insider. Old Crow, he calls him. McConnell sees Trump as an outsider, incompetent, uh, never curious about how the party works or how legislation works, as someone who's coasting along on celebrity and gut instinct. But they were able to work together closely for four years. But at the end, McConnell's had enough. McConnell is silent during the post-election period, letting the president go 
from thing to thing. McConnell watches as the president pinballs from legal idea to political gambit to another legal idea to another political gambit. He can't stand it, but he doesn't want to start having a fight with Trump. McConnell tells his aides Trump wants a fight. He wants to fight the Republican establishment. And McConnell says to his advisors, I'm not going to give him that. We're just going to let this play out. But as long as the election is seen as legitimate, we're going to move forward with the Electoral College and we're going to move forward with the certification. But eventually he comes out and he congratulates Joe Biden. And what is the president's reaction to that? McConnell and Trump speak by phone. The president is furious. He lashes into McConnell. What the heck do you think you're doing? Expletives fly. He says to McConnell, you've never been loyal. You've never been someone I could trust. You've never really been in my corner. McConnell says almost nothing. He's done with Trump. He says one sentence to Trump. The election is over. You have lost. And then the call ends. It's the last time the two speak. McConnell is over with Donald Trump after mid-December 2020. McConnell's friends say he relished the call with Trump. He was ready to say good riddance to the president, a president who he had built a transactional bond with, but a president who had worn out his welcome with the Senate leader. But this idea of loyalty, what is that concept that Trump is invoking when he's trying to get people on his side to essentially to overturn an election? And how is it different from how we usually understand the role of, of government? Trump doesn't come out of the American political tradition or the American political system like so many others in his generation who are in politics, who have been presidential contenders. Those who know Trump know he's never been a political or partisan person. He's a tribal person. When Trump talks about power, he talks about loyalty because he was taught about power by Roy Cohn, Roger Stone, people who saw politics as combat and where loyalty was paramount. It wasn't about ideology, it wasn't about your position, it wasn't about elections, it was about loyalty and power. That is the prism from the New York real estate world of Fred Trump to the New York tabloid fights of Roy Cohn and Roger Stone in the 80s. Trump comes out of a tribal New York political atmosphere where party politics is almost meaningless. What matters is loyalty. Are you someone who can be trusted to not burn the principle, to not burn Trump? I mean, that, I think that's part of the whole problem for the Republican Party. The problem for so many Republicans is they come out of the Reagan era, the Bush era, where political loyalty means loyalty to a creed, to an ideology. For Trump, loyalty means loyalty to a person, him, and that's it. How serious was the attempt to overturn the election and use Mike Pence to do it inside the White House. Did they believe that this was a possible way to stay in office? Was this a serious thing that they were undertaking? Of course. I mean, yes. January 4th, 2021, John Eastman, President Trump, in the Oval Office. They pull Vice President Pence in. He's joined by his aides, Greg Jacob and Mark Short. Trump says to Pence in front of others, you have to now listen to John Eastman. You have to follow the Eastman plan. Object to the certification. Walk away from the lectern and let the states decide. Let the states send alternate electors. 
This wasn't some idea that was presented in a vague way. It was memorialized in a memo, two pages, six parts, authored by John Eastman, a conservative lawyer, late December 2020. It was the last option for Donald Trump, the Eastman plan. Send the election back to the states so they could send alternate electors back to Congress and the election could ultimately take place in the House of Representatives. There were all these different scenarios being floated. Ultimately, Trump wanted to stay in power through having alternate electors decide he was the rightful president or to have Biden not reach the threshold he needs, 270 electoral votes. And if some of those electoral votes were contested, that number falls. And if you don't hit the number, what happens in our system? Most people don't even recognize it inside the Constitution. The election becomes what's called a contingent election. It goes into the House of Representatives. And once it's in the House of Representatives, it's not a popular vote in the House among all 435 members. It's a vote by state delegation. And even though the Democrats had the majority in the House in January 2021, guess who had the majority of delegations? Republicans. And that's where Trump saw an opening. As long as he could try to kick the election into the House, he had a shot. He had a shot at a second term. Trump becomes obsessed with kicking the election into the House. And the way to do it is to follow this plan outlined by John Eastman. Eastman's telling Trump, it's possible, it's a long shot, it's a Hail Mary, but here's the plan, I'm putting it down on paper. The only thing we need is to get Pence to buy in. If the vice president walks away and says, this isn't a legitimate election, that will enable states to then have special sessions to try to put forward alternate electors. It would raise questions about all of the electors. Trump, for Trump, time is of the essence. He's already failed in the courts. Now, in late December and early January, he needs to refocus this time on the vice president, Mike Pence. How can he bring Pence in to be the first domino to fall in a line of dominoes to keep him in power? But Pence is the person who has to start the process. Eastman says to Trump, you need to get Pence to be the one to walk away because that causes chaos. That causes a constitutional crisis where then you could argue the states need to step in, the House of Representatives might need to vote and have a contingent election. So Pence is crucial for giving his stamp of approval to this entire legal proposal, a political proposal. January 4th, Trump's in the Oval. He says to Pence in front of Eastman, listen to John, listen to John. It's a pressure campaign. Pence says to Trump, I'm going to do what I can, Mr. President. I want to help you out, but I'm listening to my lawyers. He turns to Mark Short. He turns to Greg Jacob, his advisors, and he says, they're telling me I can't do it. I can't do it. It's not constitutional. It's not legal. Trump says, you can do it. Listen to John. Pence says, well, let's have Greg Jacob, my lawyer, meet with Eastman the next day, January 5th. Trump says, fine. Trump flies to Georgia the night of January 4th for a rally. And in front of thousands of people in Georgia, Trump makes it clear through the television screen to Pence in Washington, you better follow the plan. You better listen to what I'm saying. Trump outlines in Georgia that Pence has to buy in or else he risks his entire political career. Everything's on the line for Pence if he doesn't follow through. Pence and his advisors are watching Trump in Georgia and they grow increasingly nervous that this president is not stopping his crusade against Pence. 
He's telling his own voters Pence is maybe going to do what he wants. Pence knows privately he can't do anything that Trump is saying. It's not constitutional. It's not legal. After the Georgia rally, Trump says, I'm still not hearing enough from Pence. He hasn't formally bought into the plan. January 5th, 2021, Trump says to his advisors, I need Pence over here. Bring him to the Oval. This time, it's not with Eastman or with Mark Short or the other aides. It's Trump, Pence, one-on-one, January 5th. Can Trump get Pence to agree? Trump and Pence sit down in the Oval Office. Trump says, you have to do this, Mike. If you don't do it, I picked the wrong man four years ago. I need you to do it. He says, sir, Mr. President, I've been trying to look at this. I've taken a hard look at it. I can't do it. I just can't do it. Mike, you need to do it. The Eastman plan outlines how you can do it. Trump points to the crowd outside. You can hear them through the walls of the Oval Office. The noise is so loud. They're walking through the streets. The Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, they're there the night of January 5th. Trump and Pence can hear them through the walls. Trump points outside. He says, if they gave you the power, wouldn't you want them to do it? They want you to do it, Mike. The people want you to do it. Based on our reporting, Pence says, I can't do it. Trump flies into a rage. He needs Pence to buy in, but Pence won't buy in. Ultimately, Pence says to the president, I can't do it. I just can't do it. And Trump says, if you can't do it, I don't even want to be your friend anymore. This is a man, Mike Pence, who gave everything to Donald Trump. His loyalty, 24-7, for four years. And to hear the president say, I don't want to be your friend anymore, Pence's friends say it was almost crippling to Pence on a personal level. He felt he gave it all. A friend of Pence, Tom Rose, told others that he saw Pence leave the Oval Office that night. And Pence looked as white as a ghost, like he had just been leaving a hospital after hearing bad news. This was a man who had been nearly broken by a man he had been loyal to. Pence walks up to his advisors, Mark Short and others, and says, I gave it all in there. I told Trump I've tried everything. And then he ducks into his motorcade and heads home to dinner. It was a critical moment in American history to have the vice president one-on-one in the Oval Office tell the president on what ended up being the eve of an insurrection, that he couldn't do the president's bidding and object to the certification of a presidential election. If the vice president had somehow listened to the siren song of Trump on that night in the Oval Office, the country likely would have changed. You would have had chaos and crisis on Capitol Hill on January 6th. Pence goes home and has a muted dinner with his friends and advisors at the residence at the Naval Observatory, and he decides that night he's going to issue a letter the next day before he heads to the Capitol, sketching out why he can't do what Trump wants. Pence decides he won't even go to the White House on January 6th. He'll go straight from home to the Capitol. It's over between him and Trump in terms of discussing any kind of objection. It seems like at the beginning, you know, before even they're pressing him, Pence is in a difficult spot of being torn between his loyalty to Trump and these election fraud claims, and how is he going to navigate it? Can you describe Mike Pence in that period after the election, leading up into the moment we're talking about, who he is, his relationship with Trump, and how the election is going to be putting him into this difficult position? Mike Pence is a highly adaptable former talk radio host from Indiana, someone who began his career 
as a radio host who called himself Rush Limbaugh on decaf. Someone who could embrace hard right conservatism, but have a presentable, almost moderate temperament in his articulation of those arguments. Rush Limbaugh on decaf. That was how Mike Pence described himself for years and how he described himself once he made it to the House of Representatives. Highly adaptable because Pence always is willing to understand and change when the Republican Party changes. Pence watches inside the House of Representatives how the party is convulsing during the Tea Party era and he signs on and he becomes a Tea Party leader. He goes to Indiana, becomes governor, and he watches Trump start to rise in the Republican Party. Instead of becoming anti-Trump or being repelled by Trump's personality, even though Pence initially was with Ted Cruz, he ultimately says, hey, I, Trump's someone I can work with. Pence is a conservative who is malleable in terms of his political coalitions. When Trump calls him in 2016 and says, let's have you on the ticket, he's all in. He has always eyed the presidency as his ultimate goal. Working with Trump as a vice presidential contender, it was a path in that direction, so why not? Some people close to Pence said, this is a terrible decision. Don't align yourself with Donald Trump. You're likely going to lose the election. But Pence said, I want to be with Trump because I want to be with where the party is going. Even if it's more populist than me, I'm willing to change. He adapted. He went with Trump, and he was loyal from day one. He wasn't someone who was going to question the direction of Trump or the party, but ride the tide. Now, he's confronted at the beginning of the election, fraud allegations, and he has to decide what is he going to do? Is he going to amplify it? Is he going to be like Rudy Giuliani? What is he deciding? This is in the period before they're asking him to intervene on January 6th. The clips show everything about Pence. In the days after the election, Pence is essentially echoing Trump in his own way, walking a political tightrope, trying to not be seen as extreme and, and saying the election was stolen, but not having any room between him and Trump when it comes to having suspicion about the outcome. Pence, at event after event, says to voters, don't worry, we're digging into this election. We're looking into possible fraud. He's not someone who's saying to Trump, cut it out. He knows that Trump, as much as anyone around Trump knows, he knows that Trump wants to fight this for weeks, if not months, and he's not going to stop Trump in any way. He remains the loyal soldier, but he couches his rhetoric in a bit of a different way. Pence is always careful. He wants to be seen as close to Trump, but he doesn't want to be seen as just repeating Trump's lines. He wants to have a career after Trump, and that means not being seen as Mr. Stolen Election enabling Trump, but he also wants to be seen as Trump's ally. It's never easy for Mike Pence to figure out exactly what to say and what to do. He doesn't want to lose his bearing as a Republican who's taken seriously by the leaders of the party, but he doesn't want to lose Trump's favor. There's a really interesting phone call. It's a discussion between Quayle and Pence. Can you tell us that phone call and what Mike Pence's you know, process and anguish that he's going through at that moment is? There is no one in the world who understands Mike Pence perhaps better than Dan Quayle, both Indiana Republicans, white males who have served as vice president for Republican presidents. There are only two people in the world who fit the profile of Mike Pence and Dan Quayle, two male Republicans from Indiana who served as vice president of the United States. Dan Quayle was at the lectern on January 6, 1993, overseeing the certification of his own defeat. He was someone who had been in the shoes Pence was about to put on. Pence calls up Quayle, vice president to vice president. What do you think I should do? 
Quail says, you don't have any options. There's one thing you do here. You certify the election. Pence says, I understand, but you don't understand the pressure I'm under. Trump wants me to do something. There's a huge appetite inside of this White House to somehow fight this, to block the certification. Quayle says, I get it. I understand the president's angry, but you don't have options. This, you're an overseer of the certification, the MC, the maitre d', nothing more. Pence understands. He says he listens again, but says this is a tough situation. We're hearing about voter fraud in states like your own, Arizona. Quayle now lives in Arizona. Quayle says, I, don't buy it, Mike. There's no fraud here. This is not a legitimate claim of fraud. Don't buy into the claims of fraud. Just do your job. Pence listens. He trusts Quayle. They're friends. They're both conservative Republicans. Uh, but he, this was a gut check for Pence. Call up Quayle, someone who's done this before, someone who's overseen a defeat on another January 6th, and get the advice. It was a critical moment for Pence to hear it from Quayle himself another vice president, not a political advisor on the payroll, not from someone close to Trump, not from some random lawyer. He was hearing advice from a former vice president who had been through the same thing. And Vice President Quayle had one message again and again. You have nothing to do but certify the election. You stand up there, you smile, you certify it, and you go home. Nothing more. So going to the day of January 6th and to the speech, and to mentioning Mike Pence. I mean, he's tried to get Pence to go along with him. Maybe he holds out hope he'll change his mind despite the fact that they issued a statement. But what is Trump doing? Is he appealing to the mob in that moment? What do they think that they are doing when they are telling the crowd to fight? What is the plan at that point? And what is going on when he's talking about Pence to those people? As someone who has covered Trump for over a decade, there's no happier moment for Donald Trump than when he's revving up a crowd. I've seen it in Arizona. I've seen it in Texas. I've seen it in Florida. He loves to have the crowd in the palm of his hand and not worry about the consequence of what he's saying, to stir them up, to show their loyalty through roar after roar. He likes to have the crowd with him. He wants the crowd to be as big as possible. January 6, 2021 presented Trump with one of his biggest crowds, his most enthusiastic and fervent crowds, and he wanted them to do whatever they wanted to prove their loyalty. Maybe that was marching up to the Capitol. Maybe that was rallying outside of the White House. He didn't think that far ahead about what it would all mean, but he liked chaos. He likes when the crowd becomes frenzied because it's a show of appreciation and fervor for him. We can't read Donald Trump's mind about what he wanted from that crowd, but it's certain through his words that day that he wanted action. He wanted people to stand with him and fight. Trial by combat, as Giuliani said. Could you take us to the Capitol and to their chanting, you know, hang Mike Pence? He is now a target of the, the crowds. And what is happening with him? Once Pence releases his letter, and it circulates immediately on social media, Trump's supporters erupt. They can't believe it. Pence is breaking with Trump. He's not going to do what the president wants. They explode on Pennsylvania Avenue, on the steps of the Capitol, because of the letter. They read it and realize Pence isn't going to go along. Once the Trump supporters at the Capitol realize that Pence has issued a formal letter saying he's not going to do what Trump wants, they began to chant, hang Mike Pence, find Mike Pence, take down Mike Pence. 
They want to find the man they now blame for enabling Joe Biden to become the next president. I get, from, any I get from that that Mike Pence, uh, you know, for his own safety, he probably should have just done nothing. Not have that fucking letter. Not have anything that, that would spark riots. Uh, or like an explanation. Have, it, have that afterwards. When he just does his ceremonial thing of, of uh, certifying the, the MC thing. Certifying the elections, man. Hindsight. 2020. For Paul Ryan, he thought maybe he could nudge Trump toward the political center, nudge Trump toward normal, but it was during the Charlottesville riot, the attack, that Ryan recognized there was no chance he could ever bring Trump around, that he could corral the president's conduct in any way. And it was really from Charlottesville on that Paul Ryan realized his own speakership was waning it would end at some point likely in the trump presidency because he couldn't connect with someone not just on a political level but on a moral level ryan saw charlottesville as a moral crisis trump couldn't see it that way declined right to even I'm walk back like, his comments right and ryan's on a mountainside on vacation with his family and he turns to them and he calls his aides and he says i just don't get what Trump's up to, who this guy is. Does he not understand what he's saying when it comes to white nationalism? One of the comments that's reported in the book that Trump says now seems to be especially revealing, which is, you know, these are my people. What does it reveal about Trump, about how he sees people engaged in, in political violence all the way back? There's a sewing machine that's around here somewhere. I've seen it. You hold it in your hand. It's a you handheld, and and, and and then I could stitch this together. Cause I didn't. I didn't oh, see this one through. The new little sewing thing that I got. I think it was still in the box. That yes. Was, that one. Yeah. Yeah, that thing. That thing. Might be in the sheds. So that would that would that would tie these two in good, right here. Back then, I've stood behind Trump when he's at rallies, watching him watch the crowd. He thinks these crowds. His supporters are his people. And it doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter if they have a crude message on their signs. It doesn't matter if they march through the streets of Charlottesville, Virginia. He sees them as his core supporters, and he won't break with them. This is someone who craves political popularity, and if someone is loyal to him, he will essentially stay loyal to them. That is the Trump transactional playbook. And it applies not just to high-ranking political leaders, but to his core supporters in the grassroots. He can't break with people he believes are there with him, who have been with him not only during his political career, but during his business career, his time on reality show television. He believes he has an audience, and he wants to keep the audience, regardless of their conduct. And just to get it clearly from you, it's not even speculation. It's what he actually said, right, to Ryan. What, what do you mean? What, what, what part? I mean, did um, 
what I, what I try to get is that he actually said to Ryan, oh, these yes, are my right. people, right? As the House Speaker's listening to the President go on and on, he realizes that Trump won't move at all. Why won't Trump move, Ryan recognizes? It's because Trump keeps saying to him on the phone, these are my people. Trump is on the phone with Paul Ryan and saying to the House Speaker, Paul, you don't understand me and you don't understand my political appeal. These are my people. I'm standing with my people. Ryan says, I don't care if they're so-called your people. You have your to disavow the white nationalists. Trump says, you don't get it, Paul. These are my people. I think one of the questions during the period leading up to Lafayette Square was the president's attitude, especially now, although let's talk about authoritarianism and how strong and how far he was willing to go. I mean, there's reporting in the book about using active duty troops. And can you describe what the president wanted to do as he saw protesters in Washington? Trump's closest friends tell me, remember, he didn't serve in the military, but he did go to New York Military Academy. This is someone whose father loved the military, loved military figures. Trump has followed in his father, Fred Trump's footsteps, and someone who highly regards military leaders, tough guys, as Trump says. Trump has surrounded himself as president with tough guys, people he sees through the prism of military, gritty leadership. When he walks across Lafayette Square, he wants to be seen as a strong man. Not necessarily an authoritarian. People close to Trump say he never even really uses the word, but he wants to be seen as tough, even if it shatters political norms. Uh, he surrounded himself in his cabinet, in his administration, with retired and current military officials. A lot of people in the military sat up and took notice of Trump early on. This is someone who really likes to be with generals, talks about the generals in a personal way. My generals, Trump says often when he refers to military leaders. Lafayette Square was an episode that wasn't an aberration. It encapsulated who Donald Trump is, the wannabe military type leader striding across a square in a chaotic city with two military leaders at his side, Chairman Milley and Secretary Mark Esper. It was no coincidence that Trump wanted to walk across the square with Mark Esper, the Defense Secretary, and Chairman Milley at his side. This is the image he has cultivated. It's the image he wanted. And he even wanted to do more, right? He wanted to have active duty, 10,000 active duty troops inside Washington. When he tells that to his advisors, what does he say and how much of a break with American Democratic tradition is it what he's talking about and contemplating? In late May and on June 1st, Washington was on the brink of a war-like atmosphere. The president sitting in the Oval Office and considering bringing in active duty troops, lethal troops who know how to kill. These are not National Guard troops who direct traffic. These are troops from different regiments, different parts of the military. I believe it was the Airborne. Trump wants to bring in the 101st Airborne up from Fort Bragg to come into Washington. His generals, Chairman Milley, other military advisors are saying to Trump, you can't do this, sir. Mr. President, if you bring these troops into Washington, D.C., if you bring them to Black Lives Matter Plaza, you will have blood on the streets of Washington, D.C. He holds back, but they are there. Never forget, the troops got as close 
to Washington as the river. They're sitting over in Maryland just waiting for the call from President Trump. Ultimately, Esper and Milley prevent Trump from making that decision. They stave off Trump going in that direction. But Trump was this close to bringing in active duty combat troops to the streets of Washington. On the streets that night in Washington, I was there, you would have never known uh, amid the chaos that it could have been even worse, uh, that troops were ready to come in at a moment's notice. I think we should start at the moment when Trump walks out to the microphone after the election in the early morning hours. Just help us with what he sets in motion at that moment when he says that frankly he did win the election and what was he thinking at the time? Trump didn't have a coherent plan, but he knew he wanted to fight. He couldn't stand the idea of losing. Some aides were telling him, sir, it's over. Start heading back to Mar-a-Lago, get ready for running again in 2024. Trump wanted none of it. Initially, he kind of acknowledged in the few hours after the election that maybe he, maybe he lost, maybe Biden won. But that tune changed so quickly. The reason Trump changes his tune in part is because he has a phone call with Rudy Giuliani, the former New York mayor, his personal lawyer. Giuliani tells Trump, keep fighting. We will have a legal crusade, a political crusade, to keep you in power. Trump loves the idea. Even though Trump has a campaign apparatus, a legal team that's ready to fight in certain states and have a court fight to a point, Giuliani wants political and legal war. And that's when Trump gives the keys, essentially, to Rudy Giuliani, not his campaign lawyers. He says to Rudy, do what you need to do to help me stay here. And when Trump decides to start fighting, he's really going to create this moment that's going to cause a lot of people to have to decide what are they going to do. And there's a number of them that we'll talk about. And one of the ones that comes out very early on and goes on Fox News and is raising questions about it is Lindsey Graham. Can you describe who Lindsey Graham is and what he thinks that he's doing in this period when he's talking about election fraud and also talking to the president at that time? Lindsey Graham is as close as anyone can be to Trump inside the Republican Party, a golf buddy of President Trump's, someone who calls the president early in the morning, late at night. He's the classic presidential confidant a bachelor from South Carolina who loves golf and loves being friends with the president. Uh, he was close to the late Senator John McCain, and after McCain's death, Trump filled the void for Graham in a personal and political sense. Trump was someone he could work with, he felt he understood. Graham fancied himself the explainer of Trump to the rest of the Republican Party. Graham knows Trump's personality better than anyone, and he gets that Trump wants to keep fighting. But Graham is a lawyer. He comes out of the military JAG Corps. He knows that if you're going to have a legal fight, you have to have evidence. From day one, he's trying to balance Trump's instinct, that fighting instinct, with the legal and political reality that Trump has likely lost unless some kind of evidence is presented that changes everybody's mind. Graham encapsulates the balancing act inside the Republican Party. Graham is trying to keep Trump as his best friend, to keep Trump at his side, but he also knows that this entire effort could careen into disaster for the GOP if it stretches on too long. But like so many in the Republican Party, Graham thought he could contain the situation, 
but he's usually disappointed like everybody else when it comes to those who try to contain Trump. He wants to contain Trump, but ultimately realizes it's probably not possible. Graham is working in the days after the election to be someone who tells others in the Senate, stay cool, Trump will vent for a while, let him have his grievances, but we'll get this going. It's likely he'll leave the White House. We're not going to have a problem. Graham was someone early on who saw this with a sunny disposition, that it was Trump venting more than anything. I mean, but even while that's going on, I mean, the price of that, what is the price of that access? Because he's going on Fox News. He's calling election officials in Georgia. He's in his own way. I mean, isn't he pushing something that it sounds like he doesn't even believe there's evidence for? Graham, even if he has his own doubts, buys in. He buys in to Trump's belief, this suspicion that the election is stolen. What you see in the Republican Party, even among those who are skeptical, is a readiness, a willingness to buy in to Trump's assumptions about the election, assumptions that ultimately are shown to be a lie. They buy in because they believe Trump has immense political capital. And they also think his personality is one that needs to be allowed to explore all these different ideas, to talk to a million different people before he finally closes the door on election 2020. Everybody in the Republican Party at the highest ranks, in some respect, fancies themselves an armchair psychologist when it comes to President Trump. They believe he can somehow be managed, that the situation, as long as they have a light touch, can be kept under control. But of course, it can't. My last question on Graham. He watches this Sidney Powell press conference, and you describe him as saying it's beyond bizarre. He is golfing with Trump, trying to convince him to drop his objections. I mean, for that cost, for the price that he is paying in order to be close to Trump, does he manage to succeed? Does he get anything out of it? Graham quickly recognizes that this thing is spiraling out of control. Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, they're at the wheel. Not Mitch McConnell, not Lindsey Graham. It's Sidney Powell, it's, it's Rudy Giuliani. And an effort the Republicans in Congress thought would maybe last a few days, at most a couple weeks, suddenly becomes something that maybe will stretch into early 2021. There's an exasperation with Lindsey Graham, with others close to Trump, that they're losing control of the president, they're losing control of the presidency. Graham believed he can make a few phone calls, figure out if there's voter fraud, and then tell Trump, hey, it's time to close this. But then Trump decides he's just going to keep digging in. And Trump starts to listen less to Lindsey Graham, starts to listen less to those around him who are saying, hey, there's not a there there. Where's the evidence, Mr. President? But he keeps hearing from people on the far right and inside his new legal team that there is something there. There is a stolen election that only needs to be further discovered. Trump begins to believe it in an innate way, even though evidence doesn't back it up. And when people like Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani come into his orbit and start telling him that there are affidavits saying that there's voter fraud in 10 states or that the election machines are somehow rigged, Trump welcomes those ideas, even if they're not based in fact. Graham, his phone calls with Trump, they start to be shorter. His conversation's more clipped. Because if you're not in with Trump's effort in mid and late November 2020, 
You're not in with Trump at all. He wants yes people around him. That's why it's Sidney Powell who starts in late November and early December to go up to the residence, the private meetings, that yellow room up near the residence in the second floor of the White House. That's where Trump's huddling with Sidney Powell, huddling with Rudy Giuliani. And, and if you're not mapping out a way for him to stay in power, he doesn't want to hear from you. As he goes into that period, as the president is starting to push this, who is Bill Barr? And what is his relationship with Trump? And, you know, is he a deep state operative as, as he gets accused of later? Who is Bill Barr at that moment? Bill Barr had been attorney general for George H.W. Bush, then went into the private sector, into the private practice of law. But he wanted back in. Barr wanted back into Washington, back to be close to the flame of power. And he got that chance with President Trump. He ingratiates himself with Trump with a letter that outlines Barr's position on the Mueller investigation, expressing skepticism about the way the Mueller investigation is moving forward. Trump loves it. He brings Barr in, makes him attorney general. From day one, Barr builds a bond with Trump. Barr is a loyalist to Trump. And if that's what Trump wanted at this point in the presidency, someone who was going to do what he wanted at DOJ, who was going to be a tough presence, someone he could count on, not necessarily as a political soldier, uh, but as someone who wouldn't be a problem. Jeff Sessions, the previous AG, had been a real problem in Trump's view, and he wanted someone he could count on, a seasoned pair of hands at the Department of Justice. After the election, Barr is still a loyal figure close to Trump. Barr remains close to Trump in the days after the election, but he grows weary by the day with Trump's continued complaints about the election and allegations of fraud, allegations Barr knows are not based in fact. Because Barr has a team that's spread out around the country keeping track of the election and its integrity. Barr went a little bit too far in the eyes of many Democrats and some Republicans in having the DOJ pay so close attention to possible election fraud. Barr is already doing what Trump wants when it comes to the election. He has a whole team that has a close eye on what's happening in a state after state. But when Trump keeps barreling forward, Barr pulls him aside and says, Mr. President, enough. The evidence isn't there. And when Trump goes on and on about voter fraud in Michigan and voter fraud in Pennsylvania, Barr comes at Trump with the data, but Trump doesn't want to hear it. Trump screams at Barr and says, I don't want to hear what you have to say. You're wrong. This election was stolen. Barr says, sir, the election wasn't stolen. It was a breaking point. When Barr wouldn't echo Trump's claims, Barr knew it was over. It was time to leave. The only question was when. How important was Barr as a check at that moment in our constitutional government and everything that was playing out? What could, the, you know, if the attorney general had decided to go along with the efforts of the White House, what role did he play? Barr was a check. He kept the president from making wild claims of voter fraud and using the DOJ as a weapon to fight his political opponents and make claims of fraud. But Barr was a check only so far. Uh, Barr doesn't stop Trump from continuing to move down the path of claiming the election was stolen, of moving toward January 6th with the intention of blocking Biden and the certification of the election. Barr is a roadblock to Trump, but he's not someone that ultimately has a lot of influence. He leaves the White House, Trump doesn't seem to care, and he just keeps going. Our system 
was built to have the Attorney General be an independent officer within the cabinet, the chief law enforcement officer. And this time, that chief law enforcement officer offered facts to the president, but if the president doesn't accept the facts from the chief law enforcement officer, does the system actually work? Because the president ignored his own attorney general, dismissed him, yelled at him, and the attorney general ultimately resigned. Barr had power, but he only had power to a point. If the president doesn't listen, are you really powerful? I mean, it's true. And at one point, Barr even goes public when he talks to the Associated Press. You know, how unprecedented move was that? How did Trump respond to that? Instead of seeing his own attorney general as the chief law enforcement officer who offers an opinion based in evidence, in fact, in investigation, Trump began to see Barr as a pundit, someone who he disagreed with about the election and could just be shrugged off, not taken seriously. And ultimately, they stopped talking. Trump stops taking Barr's calls and stops calling Barr. Trump stops calling Barr. And he says to Barr at one point, Bill, do you notice I'm not calling you anymore? And Barr later told others, I thought that was good. I didn't want to be talking to Trump at that point. The president reaches out to Ted Cruz and asks him to get involved. Who's Ted Cruz and why was he important to Trump in this period? Oh, great question. Ted Cruz was supposed to be the next star of the Republican Party, maybe even the next Republican president. He wins the Iowa caucuses in 2016, the favorite of conservative evangelicals. The White House seems within reach, but Trump ruined Ted Cruz's ambitions. Trump put Cruz's entire career on the shelf, at least for four years, when he beat Cruz for the nomination. Cruz had a moment in 2016. Uh, Cruz was up on the stage at the Republican National Conventions and he told the crowd, vote your conscience. It was an opportunity for Cruz to maybe set himself up as not necessarily the anti-Trump, but the conservative standard bearer in the Trump era. To be someone separate from Trump, a conservative voice in a populist time. But ultimately, Cruz doesn't become the conservative alternative to Trump. He becomes an enabler of Trump politically, an ally of President Trump. Throughout the Trump presidency, instead of setting himself up as a foil, he sets himself up as an ally of Trump. By the end of the Trump presidency, Cruz is looking to help. He's a constitutional scholar, an acclaimed lawyer. He knows Trump can only go so far. And when Trump asks him again and again in the post-election period, can you help me go to the Supreme Court, he often has to privately throw a bucket of cold water on Trump's legal dreams. He says, Mr. President, you have to do X, Y, and Z before you get to the Supreme Court. I'm happy to help in any way I can, but you have to lower your expectations. Cruz was an, essentially an outside legal advisor to Trump, offering perspective, not necessarily counsel. On December 30th, 2020, Senator Josh Hawley decides he is going to object. It's a monumental moment for the Republican Party. Mitch McConnell had hoped to keep every Republican senator away from objecting to get this election through January 6th to enable Biden to become the next president. Hawley was an inside job, by the way. Hawley also creates a vexing moment for We're going to get to that soon. If Hawley is going to object, what is Ted Cruz going do to do? Do your job as an American Cruz and call all three branches of government. What would he do? 
object as well. Demand Cruz insurrection charges and demand them all barred from office. After Hawley makes his announcement, Cruz says, what are our Disqualified. options? They talk all of them. different steps they could take to help Mid Trump object to the President count. 2024, Cruz fuck decides that. to no. come up with a commission a collective presentation of Republican senators who would say we need to now study the election, study election.